Again, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have it, uh, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it together. Uh, But we come this morning to land the plane on this series through the Ten Commandments. We've been working through them now for several months together. And we come to the Tenth Commandment today, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, where Moses writes, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I want to remind you about what we've said about the Ten Commandments thus far, as we, before we jump into this one in particular, that the commandments were not given in order that we might become redeemed people, but they were given so that we might live as redeemed people. So in other words, they weren't given to us as a ladder that we could climb to ascend our way to God, to make our way up to Him as if we could become acceptable to Him by how well we kept the commandments in our own strength, in our own power. God didn't come to Israel and Egypt and say, hey, if you keep these things, then I'll come rescue you and I'll bring you into the land of promise. No, God said, I will come rescue you and I will pledge to bring you into the land of promise and as now you live as my rescued people, here's how you ought to live in the freedom that I've secured for you by freeing you from slavery and bondage and captivity. Because as soon as you begin to try to put your feet and hands upon the rung of this thing as a ladder, you realize very quickly that those rungs begin to crumble beneath you because there's no way that you have the strength or capacity to climb up to God yourself. He had to come down to you to rescue you in your sin and in your sorrows and to lift you to Him. And then He gives us not a stairway to get to Him, but a pathway to live in the freedom that He's provided for us. And this 10th commandment is no different, right? But the 10th commandment is a little bit unique in the fact that we discover that what God is after in our lives is not just our deeds, but He's after our desires. He's after our desires. Because listen, it's one thing to go down through the list of the commandments, right? I check off the boxes. I kept the Sabbath. I honored my mother and father. I have not committed adultery. I have not stolen anything from anyone. I can check all the boxes, but it's quite another thing to keep all our desires in check. Okay, You can check all the boxes, but do you keep in check those desires of the heart that drive all of our actions? That's what the 10th commandment is after. Not just our deeds, but our desires in the form of covetousness. And so what is covetousness? As we take a look at it this morning, covetousness, listen, is this. It's desiring something so much that it destroys your contentment in God. Covetousness is desiring something so much that it destroys your contentment in God. Now listen, there are some desires that we have that are healthy desires that God has planted within us, that He's given to us. And as we pursue them, God turns our hearts in different directions based upon the desires that He plants within us. But covetousness is not just those normal desires that God gives us to move us towards His purposes and plans, but covetousness are inordinate desires that rise in our hearts that lead us to a position where it destroys our contentment in God. In other words, covetousness is this. It's the belief that I must have in order to be happy. I must have more than I have now in order to be happy. And at its root, listen, covetousness is idolatry. 
It's idolatry. This is how Paul says it in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, Paul says, idolatry. Listen, when we covet something or someone, it's an expression of unbelief, of unbelief in our operative in our lives. In other words, I don't believe God is enough. I don't believe God has given enough. I don't believe God is good enough. I, don't want, I want more than I have and more than God has given, and then I will be content, then I will be happy, then I will be significant, satisfied, and secure. That if I have more than what I have now, it's, a, it's, it's, a bad, it's an unbelief that God's not enough, not good enough, hasn't given enough. And it's very interesting to note this, that the commandments start in the first one with a prohibition against false gods, other gods, against idolatry, and they end with a prohibition against idolatry, a form of idolatry. On both ends of the commandments, you have this prohibition of idolatry because God knows our hearts, as John Calvin said, are like idol factories. They just create idol after idol after idol after idol. And this is the default... Lucy's a little upset. This is the default mode of the human heart. right? Covetousness is the default mode. You know how I know that? Because I have children. Okay, listen, from the earliest of ages, whenever you watch your children play with their siblings or with other children, what you discover is that you could have a toddler who is, is, you know, 18 months old and just kind of scooting around and he goes to pick up a block over here and he has it and he's playing with it and all of a sudden he sees his sibling or another child with another block over there and though he has a block of his own in his hand, what does he want? He wants her block, doesn't he? And so he goes over and he snatches the block. And then if you don't see it, you don't know what happened. All you hear is the aftermath, right? Which is, like just uncontrollable. Like the world is coming to an end, right? Because I want more, they want, we want more by default mode of our human hearts. We want more than what we have, even if we already have. Right? You get a little bit older, and listen, even though your children may have every single Nerf gun that's ever been manufactured, right? whenever a new one is released and hits the shelves at Target, they have to have the new one, or else all of life is pointless and meaningless. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> or as you get a little bit older, okay, this doesn't go away. I don't know if you've recognized that. It doesn't go away. This insatiable desire that we have for more. Listen, you can have all the clothes that you need in your closet to clothe yourself for a month without doing laundry, so long as you flipped underwear inside out, okay? You can have all the clothing that you need, and yet that cute shirt or those cute shorts at the store, you've, you've got to have them. You've got to have them. Or you can have a functional vehicle that's reliable. Starts, it gets you from point A to B, even though it's old, it's got a few dents and scrapes on the side, and yet you still want a shiny new one. See, the desire doesn't go away, it just changes the way it manifests in our lives. The types of things that we want or that we desire. Covetousness is the default mode of the human heart. And again, we're not talking about healthy desires because you know a healthy desire is crossed over into covetousness when it begins to destroy and erode your contentment. You can no longer be content unless I possess this. All right? This is what covetousness, covetousness is. I'll say that three times really fast. 
Okay. But listen, what does covetousness produce? Covetousness is the seed of all kinds of sin in our lives. Of all kinds of sin. Which is why we're told in the scriptures that we ought to be on guard against it, against covetousness. Because it's the root of all kinds of sin. J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican bishop in the 1800s, said it this way. He said, it would be vain to decide positively which is the most common sin in the world. It would be safe to say that there is none, at any rate, to which the heart is more prone than covetousness. It was this sin which helped cast down the angels who fell. They were not content with their first estate. They coveted something better. It was this sin which helped to drive Adam and Eve out of paradise and bring death into the world. Our first parents were not satisfied with the things which God gave them in Eden. They coveted and so they fell. It is a sin which ever since the fall has been the productive cause of misery and unhappiness upon the earth. Wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envying, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may nearly all be traced up to this fountainhead of covetousness. Because see, covetousness, when it destroys our contentment, it sets us on a path a path of destruction, both personally and at times nationally, internationally. Because every quarrel, every strife, every war, every division, every, every difficulty in family relationships, and every uh, combat upon the global stage ultimately finds its root in this, this sin of covetousness. Listen, in James chapter 4, verse 2, James says this, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. In fact, interpersonal conflicts erupt in our families over this issue of covetousness. They're not having something that we want. In fact, I was visiting with a a member of ours here at Redeemer who's sharing a story in our life group, in fact, a couple of weeks ago about her family. And how her family has been uh, divided at the seams, essentially, between all of her parents' siblings on account of the inheritance that her grandmother left to them. It was a substantial, sizable inheritance, right? So much so that each sibling would have received about $10 million. And yet the siblings were squabbling over who got what as it got divided. And so what they did was they wasted all of the inheritance on the legal fees, fighting each other in court over who was going to get the lion's share of what had been left to them by their parents. That's covetousness. And it destroys families. Just interpersonally, it causes all kinds of strife, all kinds of conflict, but not just personally, internationally as well. On the stage of human history, there is not a shot that's been fired or a war that's been fought that has not had at its heart this desire for more land, for more people, for more power. The belief that I will be content, I will be happy if I just get a little bit more. See, it's the root of all kinds of sin. But not only is it the root of all kinds of sin, it's also the root of all kinds of false teaching and doctrine as well. Listen, the covetousness is the root of what has been deemed uh, in our day and time the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. See, the prosperity gospel is something that 
I don't know if I would call them pastors, but they use in order to promise people and promote covetousness in the hearts. In fact, they harness covetousness in the hearts of people that's already there to promise them health and wealth that God has not promised in this age. They get the cart before the horse because there's a day that's coming in which we'll all be healed. In which we'll all enjoy the riches and the fullness of God. And yet that's not in this age have we been promised those things. And the prosperity gets the gospel gets the cart before the horse. 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 And shows just how prone we are toward this issue of covetousness. Some of you know I I, at times tend to be a a connoisseur of a little hip-hop music. I know you probably couldn't tell that by looking at me. And yet, in one of his songs entitled Change, off of an album that was released a number of years ago, a hip-hop artist, Lecrae, talks about all the ways in which he's tried to go about bringing change in his life, or people try to bring about change in their lives. But they don't ever see lasting change. And listen to one of, the, one of the ways he words it is this way. He says, now you got Oprah on. Thinking maybe she can help you out your hopeless zone. She's going to change you. You even tried the church. The pastor gave you a bunch of rules, but they ain't seem to work. You don't change. You tried another one, though, that's got you feeling good inside and got you running from mo and mo, like more and more, <laughs> be the way that I would say it, but he says it more poetically. But it's all, ab- not, it's all about you, not God, and not truth. Just because you wear the suit don't mean you've been changed. Is Christ just a means to money plus health? You're the master, and he's the dummy. No. And listen, that is what the prosperity gospel does. It turns Christ into a means to an end, not the end in and of Himself. We don't come to Jesus because He's beautiful and because He's glorious and because He's majestic and because He's lovely, because of everything that our heart desires, but we come to Jesus because He promises to give us everything our heart really does desire in the prosperity gospel. In fact, there was a church that was planted about the same time that we were, and they've grown explosively. And a part of their doctrinal statement says this. I'm not going to name names. You can go look for it if you want. But the doctrinal statement says this. In the section under ties, offerings, and prosperity. That's the heading of the doctrinal article. We believe in the tithe, the first 10% of income that belongs to the Lord. Offerings that are given willingly and alms to be given to the poor. Yes. Yet, we also believe prosperity is the will of God for every believer and always to be associated with God's purpose for our lives. And then they give two proof texts for that. Deuteronomy 8.18 and 2 Corinthians 8.9. Now let's just stop down for a moment and kind of unpack those. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you've heard me talk about Deuteronomy before, you know that it's Moses' farewell sermon to God's people before they cross over into the land of promise. Right, they've been brought out of Egypt... They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of the unbelief and the hardness of their hearts. And then God's about to bring them into the land. So through Moses' farewell sermon that he delivers to them about what life would be like and what they should do whenever they come into the land, the recounting of the re-giving of the law in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, which is one of these texts they cite, it, Moses says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Now listen, 
The first thing to note about this text in Deuteronomy 8 is this. It's not addressed to you or me as an individual, but it's addressed to a nation of people of Israel. As they approached the entrance of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not something that we should take and just apply to every individual circumstance and every individual situation, but it's a promise made to a nation that God would bring them into this land of promise. And second of all, listen, it's not a promise of prosperity, but a, a call for the nation to remember God's provision whenever they come into this land that they've been given to inherit. That it wasn't their power that got them there. That it wasn't their might that got them there. That it wasn't their numbers that got them there. That it wasn't their strength that got them there. That it was ultimately God's power to take them from where they were and plant them in what He had promised. That's how they got to be in the position they would be in whenever they came into the land that God had promised them. The land flowing with milk and honey. Saying, don't turn from me, but remember, it was I who did this, not you. So the second text they use is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, in which the Apostle Paul is trying to take up a collection for the church at Jerusalem to provide for the saints who were in need. And in so doing, he appeals to the church at Corinth on the basis of who God is and what he's done in Christ for them so they might open up their pocketbooks and give to the church in Jerusalem that was in need. And in verses 8 and 9, it says this, I say this, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. First, listen, Paul is not referring to material possessions and prosperity, but to the riches of a reconciled relationship with God, regardless of how much you do or do not have. Second, this is not a promise of prosperity, but a call to generosity. Right? Paul says, show your love to be genuine by opening up your wallets and giving toward this church in Jerusalem that is in need, people that you have never met. What he's not saying is this. Listen, he's not saying that Jesus left heaven, had no place to lay his head, was stripped of his clothes, was beaten, pierced, and bled, and died so that we could afford bigger homes, newer cars, or more stylish clothing. That's not what he's saying. He's not promising prosperity. He's not promising health. He's not promising wealth. He's saying, rather, Jesus did all of this in order to move you from moral and spiritual bankruptcy. Having nothing to give. To grant you the riches of a relationship with God, even in the midst of material poverty, and an eternal home with Him forever. So He didn't die to make us rich in terms of worldly goods, but to make us righteous. To give us a standing before God. He emptied himself so that you and I could be full. He humbled himself so that you and I could be raised to God. He didn't impoverish himself at the cross so we could build bigger barns on earth, but so that we could be set free from the love of money and the use of wealth. And God, we could use it for, God, for God's purposes and for his glory and the good of those who are around us and be generous. So see, neither one of these texts that they cite on prosperity are related to prosperity. One's a call to remember that God is the one who provides for us, and the other is a call to be generous toward those who are in need around us. I'll come down now. (laughs) All right? But see, covetousness, the prosperity gospel harnesses it. 
and takes what the Bible calls sin and pushes on it in order to promise something that God has not promised in this age. That's why we are to be on guard against covetousness. It's the root of all kinds of sin and all kinds of false teaching. So how do we do this? Listen, we've got to combat covetousness. You've got to go to war against it. Okay? Let's talk about this for a moment. In in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells us a parable about a man who was destroyed by it. In Luke chapter 12, uh, in verse 13 and following, I'll read it to you. It says this, someone in the crowd, as Jesus was traveling along, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In this parable, Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. Right? So we got to not only, listen, we got to combat it because it is a force to be reckoned with in our hearts. And in verse 15, we're told that the force behind our covetousness is this, the false notion that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. That's the force behind, that's the power behind covetousness. The belief that our life consists in how much we make and how much we have and where we live and in what we drive and what we wear. It's the abundance of our possessions. And so we have to go to war against this mentality. How do you know if it's in your life? How do you know if it's operating? I'm going to give you several ways to identify it. First of all, if the motive for trying to make as much money as possible is to keep as much money as possible. If that's why you want a big income is so that you can keep a lot of money, then you might believe that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Now let me be very clear. Making money is not sinful. Making lots of money is not sinful so long as it's done in legal and moral ways. Okay? Making lots of money is not simple. The Bible doesn't speak about those who, doesn't, doesn't condemn those who make a lot of money. Right? Even in Jesus' teaching, and 15% of his earthly ministry is focused on money and possessions because Jesus knows how, what kind of grip they have on the human heart. But nowhere does he say anything about those who make a lot of money. You know what he says a lot about? What the Bible says a lot about is those who keep a lot of money. There's a difference between saving and hoarding. Okay? The Bible commends one and condemns the other. We said this a few weeks ago. You can save, right? The Bible con- commends that. Yes, you should save. Yes, you should put away. But there's a difference between that and a hoarding, keeping more than what you need. And the Bible calls that over and over again sin. It never addresses those who make much, it addresses those who keep much for themselves. And if that's your motive for making lots of money, 
then, you be, then somewhere down underneath, you believe that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Second, if you find your significant satisfaction and security in your possessions. Right? That you believe that you will be more respected by people when your zip code changes. I don't know if that hits home for anybody. Or you believe you'll be more significant in the eyes of people whenever the type of vehicle that's parked in that new zip code changes as well. Right? Your significance is dependent upon it. Your satisfaction is dependent upon it. You believe that earning more will create a higher degree of fulfillment in your life because then you could afford X. For me, it would be a brand new bass boat. I don't know what it is for you. That your satisfaction and your fulfillment, but also your security, that you'll be protected and guarded from any kind of harm in this life if you just have enough in the bank. Now listen, I want you to know something. You don't have to have a lot or earn a lot for your life to consist in the abundance of your possessions. You just need to believe that if you had more than you do today, you could really start living and your life would be full. That's all you need to believe. Third, if you believe that affluence, affluence automatically translates to influence, then you may believe somewhere down beneath that your life consists in the abundance of your possession. Do you believe that you should have a greater, more significant voice in the lives of people because of your value? How many zeros are in your bank account? You think that money talks and to keep it from walking, you have to give it greater weight, greater influence. You have to listen to it more. Then you believe that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Do you see how destructive this can be? This is why we're called to combat it. But how do we go about fighting against covetousness in our lives? Let me give you three ways this morning. First, first, you have to equip yourself with the word. Equip yourself with the word. See, the battle against covetousness, is a, against these destructive desires that ultimately is a battle against unbelief, about believing that God's not good, that God's not good enough, that God's not satisfying enough. There's, then listen, there's nothing more powerful in fight against unbelief than to fight with the sword of the Spirit or the word of God. You have to start there. Equip yourself with the word. Are you going to begin to hide in your heart verses like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 11, where it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with gain. This also is vanity. Right? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Are you beginning to store that up in your heart? Listen, this is one that really struck me this week, and I'll tell you why. I got a letter in the mail earlier this week. It was actually good news for once, right? That my mortgage company sent me a letter saying that they must have overestimated my escrow last time they adjusted our account. So we had a surplus that they were going to refund to us along with our house payment going down a couple of hundred dollars, not going up a couple of hundred dollars like we've been accustomed to. And we rejoice. Yes. But you know what the first thought in my mind was? Yeah, not, this, you know what the second thought in my mind was? The second thought in my mind was, well, I couldn't have gone down more. 
I hope, why couldn't we have gotten back more? Because he who has money is never satisfied with it, is never enough. No matter how much your income goes up, no matter how much your expenses go down, it's never enough. Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with gain. This is also vanity. Or Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. You're like, memorize the whole thing? If you want to. Or you can memorize verses 18 and 19. Here Jesus tells a parable about how when the seed is scattered, it falls on different types of soil. And one of the types of soil that it falls on is a thorny soil, he says. And as he explains that parable to his disciples in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he says this, And the others are the ones who are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. So there's no spiritual life. It chokes out spiritual life. It chokes out spiritual fruit. The cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches. Do you want to have a life that is fruitful for God? Do you want to have one that counts for the kingdom? Then hide this in your heart and remember, come back to it every time you sense that, that, that covetousness rising in your heart of wanting more than God is giving or than you have. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where we're told the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evils. Or 1 Timothy 6, 7, where he says we brought nothing into the world and we can take anything out of the world. You know what? Wealth will fail you when you need it most as you stand on your deathbed to breathe your last breath there is nothing that you've acquired or achieved in this life that will come with you into the next it will all stay behind because you didn't bring any of it in it will fail you in that moment or in first timothy 6 6 but godliness with contentment is great gain no matter how much you have in the bank that a life of righteousness that with contentment it's great gain. Do, do we by faith believe that? Do we believe that truth? You've got to equip yourself with the word. Second of all, you've got to exercise gratitude. All right, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul's going through this list of things that we ought to do in, in, in response to the gospel. He says this in verse 16, Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When you feel covetous, do you ever feel covetousness rising in your heart? No, I do. This, this desire for more and more and more. When you feel it rising in your heart, what you should do in that moment is not only bombard it with the word, right? fire mortar shells, but go in close in hand-to-hand combat in prayer and thanking God for all that He's given, for all that He's provided literally. Remember the old hymn? Count your blessings, count them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. Right, you recount all that God has done for you, all that God's provided, all the ways that you've seen Him be faithful to you in your past, all the ways right now that you're anticipating Him to be faithful to you in the present, and you're thanking Him for all that He's given and out of gratitude. You exercise gratitude. And listen, gratitude is like a muscle. The more that you exercise it, the stronger it becomes as it builds in your life. So that whenever 
you're tempted to want more than God has given to believe that He's not good and holding back from you, you can say, no, I've got this strong bicep of gratitude that looks back on all that God's provided in the past and rejoices in it and is grateful for it. I'm thankful in all circumstances, not just some. And then third, and third, you've got to establish governors in your life. Establish governors. And the way that we do this is through faithful giving. Listen, I had a, as a child, grew up on an acre of land down in southwest Louisiana. And my parents, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, they bought us a go-kart. Okay? So they bought us a death trap, essentially, for young boys. Okay? But the, the, it had a roll cage on it. Um, but it also had something on that engine called a governor. You know what that governor did? It restricted the speed of that engine for our own safety. So the engine could not go as fast as it, was, as it possibly could because the governor kept it from going as fast as it could, from producing as much horsepower as it could. It was capable of more, but it was held back by that governor. And listen, there's so, there, in order for us to combat covetousness in our life, we have to establish some governors. And the way that you do that is through faithful giving. So in verses 17 and 18 of, of Luke chapter 12, in the parable that Jesus tells, He says there's the man who was already rich. He had this exponential yield of grain that came in from the fields that he had no room to store all of it. And so what he could have done is he could have given some of it away. He didn't have need of it. He could have given it to those who were in need. Rather than doing that, though, he says, listen, I have a solution. I'll tear down my small barn and I'll build a bigger one so I can keep everything that I've brought in from the fields. And see, listen, unless you establish governors in your life, listen, as your income rises, you will increase your standard of living as you keep building more and bigger you will learn to trust and find security in what you have and it will only feed and fuel more and more covetousness in your life. So let me ask you a question. As your earning potential increases, is there a commitment to giving away more and more and living less and less? Do we really need to build a bigger house, to buy more land, rent another storage unit, to store all the things that won't fit in our garage anymore because we have so much. Right? Have a garage, maybe you could have a garage sale and begin to, all those things that just sit in your attic or in the corner of your garage that hadn't seen the light of day in about five years, if you sell all of that and instead of going, you know what, we'll sell all that and go on a vacation, sell all that and you give it to a family that's in need. You begin to channel resources outside your own home to provide for those who are in need, those who have medical bills, a family that's adopting, or the ministries of your local church. If your salary includes a bonus structure, listen, one of the ways to, to establish faithful governors in your life is to determine to live on your base salary or a base salary plus a percentage of your bonus, and then everything on top of that that comes in, you just give it away. You channel it out to others who are in need. And you begin to give. Where do you give? Listen, let me give you three ways. To ministry, to missions, and to mercy. Ministry, you give to the local church that God has placed you in. 
missions over and above the money that you give to support the ministry of your local church so that we can be a part of sharing the gospel, shaping disciples, and sending missionaries into our neighborhoods and across the globe, which is our mission here. You give to the mission of other organizations that you can get behind and support. You give to John Graham as he's planting churches in India through India Tribals and Ministry. You give to Latitude GLC and Keith West as he's equipping and raising up the next generation of kingdom-minded leaders. You give to Andre and his ministry over there in Moldova as they seek to raise up uh, disciples of Jesus among the sporting world. Soccer players and volleyball players and wrestlers and send them out as missionaries across Eastern Europe. right Over and above what you're giving to your local church. And then you give mercy monies away as well, both to the deserving and the undeserving poor. To those who cannot put food on the table. To those who struggle to keep shelter over their heads. For those who bounce from living situation to living situation to living situation without any stability for themselves or their children. You begin to, money begins to flow through you. Resources begin to flow through you, right? Not like a cul-de-sac where it all just kind of bottlenecks, like a cross street of grace that extends to those who are around you. Now listen, I want to close by casting a little vision for us of what might happen if we really began to do this. Equip ourselves with the Word. And be grateful for all that God has given in Christ to us. That He humbled Himself. That we might be raised up to God. And enjoy Him and know Him. Be set free from the love of money. What might happen in a community? What might happen in a church? If we as God's people begin to demonstrate a richness towards God. And a richness toward God's kingdom. Listen, here's what would happen. We begin to show him to be our treasure and not our vendor. Our treasure and not our vendor. In verses 13 and 14 of that same parable, as Jesus' popularity builds, his authority increases in the eyes of the people, and the way that this thing all gets kicked off is by a man asking him to give a ruling, be an arbiter for him on the inheritance that his family had left he and his siblings. And that's what draws out this whole discourse. Then you come to the end of the parable in verse 21, and Jesus draws the parable to its point. He says, those who keep their riches will have them stripped away in death. And yet those who demonstrate to, to the world that God is their treasure by giving away their resources over and above what they need, right, they will show God to be their treasure, that He is what they value most in this life and in this world. What would it look like if a church began to do that? I'm not talking about the organization. I'm talking about God's people. The people who are the church. It might look like storage facilities closing because instead of keeping, we sold or gave things away. This is like Paul in Ephesus. Remember the riots broke out because he had begun to cut into the profit margins of the idol makers there? (laughs) They couldn't make as much money off the people any longer in the book of Acts, and so they wanted to kill Paul. What if riots broke out in the streets of fate in Rockwall County? Right? Because the owners of the storage, if you own a storage unit, I'm sorry, but the owners of the storage units, right? They've had to begin to shut down because there's not as much stuff to pile into them. It might look like elective cosmetic surgeries not resulting from accident, disease, or birth defect experiencing a sharp decline. 
It might look like people building smaller, more modest homes rather than larger, more luxurious homes. It might look like driving a vehicle because of its usefulness rather than its status. It might even look like being content with a handful of fishing poles and firearms. Some of you men are going to want to talk to me after that, I know. It might look like minimal spending on clothing and shoes. Ladies, you'll want to come find me afterwards as well. It might look like giving a reliable vehicle to a family in need. Maybe giving it away instead of trading up. It might look like if you're a business owner, investing capital gains back into your business rather than taking them as a bonus to create more jobs for people who need, who need sustainable incomes. It might look like an outpouring of money for ministry, mission, and mercy here and in our community and around the world. Look like our church never being in need financially so we could support missionaries, help plant churches, hire future staff, give toward benevolence needs in our community with open hands, never worrying about whether or not those funds are going to run dry. Help with compassion ministry in our community. Purchase supplies to help us fulfill our mission. And on and on and on and on. What would it look like if we as God's people combated covetousness in our lives as opposed to yielding to it because it's such the norm in the culture where we live. If you're going to do this, if I'm going to do this, we have to learn to see and trust. See and trust. See that God has given everything that we need he has bankrupted heaven for us in the sending of His Son. Remember back in 2 Corinthians? That He who was rich became poor so that through His poverty we who were bankrupt spiritually might know the riches of heaven. See, the gospel is the only thing powerful enough to set your heart free from covetousness because it's the only thing that can replace that desire with a new one for God and for His purposes and for His plans. But you've also got to trust He's going to provide for all of your needs. He's going to provide for all of your needs. If you go further in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, listen, you've got to learn something from the flowers and from the birds. See, the flowers, they don't labor and toil, and yet they have clothes to wear. The birds, they don't worry. They're not filled with fret and anxiety, and yet they have food to eat. In fact, I'll read what Martin Luther said about them as we close this morning. He said this. He said, you see, he's making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men and daily should emphasize this to our eyes and ears as if he were saying to us, look, you have a house and home, money and property. Every year you have a field full of grain and other plants of all sorts, more than you ever need. Yet you cannot find peace. And you're always worried about starving. If you do not know that you have supplies and cannot see them before your very eyes, you cannot trust God to give you food for one day. The birds say, though we are innumerable, none of us spends his days living in worry. Still, God feeds us every day. In other words, we have as many teachers and preachers as there are little birds in the air. You know what, church? He says in that parable as well, does he not care much more so about who? You. 
Do you see that God's bankrupted heaven in the, in the giving of his son and that he's pledged out of his love to provide all of your needs so that your heart can be set free from all of its covetousness and that you could be a generous person amongst the generous people who sees God do amazing things in our church and in our community. Let's pray together. Father, today, we recognize that we need your help. We need your grace, your empowering grace to set our hearts free from the natural default mode that we were born with as those who have been bent and broken by sin. May your Holy Spirit come and shine the floodlight upon your Son so we might see Him for who He is. We might see You for who You are. We might see all that You have given. And that our hearts might be satisfied in Him and Him alone. Help us to equip ourselves with Your Word. And go to and combat covetousness. Help us to exercise the muscle of gratitude in our lives so that it grows stronger and stronger that when we are tempted to believe that you are not good, that what you are given, have given is not enough, that we can look back and see all of the blessings that you bestowed upon us and rejoice in them. And Father, may you help us establish governors in our lives through faithful giving. Help us to draw a line in the sand and say, this far, no further. This is all we need. This is all we need to live on. This is all we need to say. We can give and give and give and give. By your grace, may we be content people as we see and as we trust. We pray it in Jesus' name.